43 years ago, about this time of year, in 1971, in the spring, I bought my very first car. I was a junior at uh, CSU, finishing up uh, my junior year in that spring, 20 years old, and um, up until that time, I hadn't needed a car. My boys say, big deal, Dad. We had a car when we were 13. But I didn't need a car. I was uh, in college. I either lived on campus or close to the campus, um, and a bicycle was all that I really had to have. <clears throat> but that, at the beginning of that year, my pastor in Denver, Bob McPherson at the Riverside Baptist Church, asked me if I would want to work with junior high kids at the church, which meant I would have to come down on the weekends. This is a parenthesis. Um, Bob McPherson, Brother Bob, understood and valued um, experience. So he knew that I was heading toward the ministry, and, and he wanted me to offer that uh, experience for me. And there is no better training ground than a junior high group for ministry. Ask Nathan, ask David, ask Ryan. All of them have come up through the ranks as junior high leaders, and um, it's a great place to learn about people and about ministry. In any case, um, I had to have a car, so I cobbled together 400 bucks and found a 1960 Volkswagen Beetle. I didn't know what I was getting. Um, I just I liked how it looked. I liked how it drove, um, and I thought, this is great. So I bought that car. I discovered pretty quickly that it was a perfect match for me. Because I was uh, discovering that I had uh, um, an aptitude and a high interest in mechanics. I love to know how things work and uh, to work on them. And that little car became my own uh, lab rat. So I could, um, I could experiment with it. I could work on it. I could uh, adjust the, uh, the gap on the points and change the points in condenser. And most people don't even know what that means because cars don't have those these days. I could change the spark plugs and the spark plug wires and the oil and the filters and adjust the brakes and the clutch cable and the timing and all those things. And the trip from Fort Collins to Denver and back was my test track. So every time I tweaked the car, I would see how much more I could get out of the 36 horses that were harnessed in that four-cylinder engine. <laughs> I didn't mind because it also got 32 miles a gallon, and gas cost 40 cents a gallon. And so I could go from Fort Collins to Denver and back on two bucks. <laughs> Those days are gone, aren't they? <clears throat> In any case, um, that little car uh, became my treasure. And I say that to you this morning, and I tell you that story not uh, just so you can be amused at what a dork I am, or was, or am, um, <laughs> but because Jesus is going to talk to us this morning about treasures. And I think that the disposition and the, uh, the um, orientation I had toward that little car really captures what a treasure is. It became a little treasure for me. So that's what Jesus will talk about. Now I'm going to ask you to just kind of file that in the back burner of your mind for a minute, um, because, and we'll, we'll bring it out in just a second. But let's pray and ask God to give us some insight. Father, um, I don't have anything to bring, but you do. And your word is always uh, powerful. It always accomplishes its purpose. It's always sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we pray from your word that you will speak to us today, that we would have eyes that are open and ears that are open and hearts that are open to hear you. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been talking um, from the Sermon on the Mount, which is a phenomenal um, collection in that tight little sermon. Many of the themes that Jesus addresses through the Gospels uh, find their, their place in that sermon. You could read that sermon out loud in 10 minutes, so it's not a long sermon. It's just compact. It has so much to it. And so far, we've seen in this sermon the wisdom of Jesus in regard to a number of different things. And you can look at this, this sermon in a lot of different ways. You can put a different grid on it. But the grid I want you to look at it this morning with me is, is Jesus' wisdom. And his wisdom, um, first of all, he, he, we've um, looked at who is truly blessed. And it's not who we would expect. And certainly not who the people who first heard this sermon from Jesus would expect. It's not the rich and the powerful, but the poor in spirit and the meek. It's not those who are insulated from pain and suffering, but those who mourn and are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's upside down. That's not the way most of us think of people that are blessed, but that's who Jesus says are blessed. He also talks about who is truly good. And once again, it's not who we would expect. It's not those who pursue external righteousness and live in the technical requirements and limits of the law, who are careful about keeping laws and then also knowing how far they can go to the limit of the law before they've transgressed. And the religious people, the righteous people of Jesus' day lived in that place. They loved laws. They had laws that interpreted laws and laws on top of laws and rules uh, that uh, came out of the laws. And their righteousness, their goodness, for their sake, was based on how well they kept laws. But Jesus said those who are truly good are those who live from their hearts, honoring marriage, as we saw last week, keeping their word, refusing to take revenge, loving even their enemies. And we know that those standards of righteousness that Jesus puts forward in this sermon are impossible for us because our hearts are wicked, because our hearts uh, will betray us. But we also know that Jesus has offered us a new heart. And out of that new heart, we can live the way that he's prescribed. Also, um, Jesus answers the question, what is true prayer? And it's not, again, what we'd expect. It's not bending the will of a reluctant, impersonal deity who we have to appease and impress in order to get him to do what we want. That's not prayer at all. Instead, prayer is aligning our will with that of a loving Heavenly Father. And when we see God that way, we want our will to match his. And so that's what real prayer is. Now today, in this part of the sermon that we will look at, Jesus is going to answer the question, who is truly secure? And it's, again, not who we expect. It's not those who have a lot to draw on. I think I'm probably a little bit sensitive about these commercials that come on TV right now that ask the question, <clears throat> do you have enough money to retire? I'm, because I'm closing in on that that age. And then I say to myself, well, how much is enough? Is there any such thing as enough to retire on? And that 
betrays the, the notion that in our world, security is tied to how much you have accumulated, how much you have, how much is in your bank account. And Jesus is going to teach us um, something completely different. He opens this section of teaching um, with a word or of advice that any financial counselor would say is good advice. And that is invest in the right things. Invest for the long term. Don't invest in things that will go away, but invest in the things that will last. Here's what he says. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, clearly, we would know that Jesus is doing a lot more than giving us financial advice. There's something much, much more. And there are three keys, I think, to understanding this little section of verses. The first key is the notion of treasures. And again, now think of, uh, back to what I talked about, the car that I learned to treasure. And think about the things that you attach value to um, that become your treasures. Is Jesus saying that we shouldn't have bank accounts? Is he saying that we shouldn't own any property? Well, there are people who have drawn those inferences, but it's not here. Jesus doesn't tell us never to plan, never to work, never to save up, never to have anything to hold on to. He just tells us um, that we need to think about how we, how we hold those things. He's not teaching against material wealth or money, but he's talking about our disposition toward those things. And treasures are things we hold on to and we try to keep because we place high value on them. Second thing uh, that helps us understand what Jesus is talking about here is the, the distinction he makes between treasures on earth and treasures in heavens. It's a vital distinction between what is temporary, things on earth, and what is eternal, things in heaven. Now, Jesus is going to talk a lot more about that as we go through these verses, and so that's a thread that's going to run through here, so I'm not going to say a lot more about that. But let me just say this. When I finished uh, the first service at 8.30 this morning, a guy came up to me and he said, <clears throat> do you think you could just define for me what a treasure in heaven is? Well, that's a good question. And I hadn't defined that, um, so I had to think about it. The notes in my study Bible said, treasures in heaven is anything done in this life that has eternal value. I think that's a pretty good definition, a pretty good description. So anytime you give to support your church, that's a treasure in heaven that you're laying up. Anytime that you volunteer to teach children, about God's word. That's, a, that's treasures in heaven that you're laying up. Anytime that you invite a friend to youth group or invite a friend to church, that's treasures in heaven that you're laying up. Anytime that you love your wife, men, that's a treasure that you're laying up because that's a, a, a command that God's word gives to us. So anytime you do something that has eternal value, you are laying up treasures in heaven. And the third thing, and the final thing that gives us insight into what Jesus is saying here is this phrase that he uses, the sentence, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's a 
extremely important sentence. Your heart, your heart is your will, it's your spirit, it's the center of your being. And our treasures focus our hearts. In fact, that's what Jesus says. Now, Jesus is not talking about wealth in particular, although it plays a very significant part in what he is saying. He's talking about much more, about the basic orientation of our lives. Are we focused only on this world? Is this where our treasures lie? Or do we believe and accept his teaching that eternity is in front of us and place our treasures there? This, this little phrase really uh, is interesting to me because it has both a diagnostic and a, a prescriptive element to it. Diagnostic is, it tells us something. You can know where your heart is by seeing where your treasure is. So if you want to know where your heart is, look at your bank statement. Look at how you spend your time. Look at where you're invested. That's where your heart is. Is it here in the things of this world? Or is it in heaven, in the things that matter, that are eternal? So it's diagnostic, but it's also prescriptive. Because what Jesus says to us is you can influence where your heart will be. He, it's, it's, he, he says, lay up treasures in heaven. Because if you lay up your treasures in heaven, then that's where your heart will be. It's kinda, I heard a guy um, uh, talk about this kind of like a thermostat. The thermostat on your wall, you know. It tells you what the temperature is in your house. That's diagnostic. But it also can change the temperature in your house. That's when you push the dial or, or push the buttons and raise or lower the temperature and turn on the heat or the cooling. That's prescriptive. So we can change where our heart is by changing where our treasure is. Now, Jesus follows that with two warnings. And the warnings are basically warnings about the fact that the things of this earth can be, not always are, but can be hazardous to our spiritual health. And so he talks about, um, in verse 22, uh, what happens when our eyes are bad. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What's he saying? He's saying if our eyes are focused in the wrong place, our lives will be full of darkness. If our, if our eyes are focused only and always here on the things of this world, that's darkness. But if our eyes are focused in eternity, then that brings light to them. And then he says in verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's a pretty, pretty flat-out statement, isn't it? You can't serve both. You either hate the one and love the other, or vice versa. You can't serve both God and money. Jesus gives an illustration of that principle in Luke chapter 12. Uh, in, a, in a parable that he told. And uh, it's set up um, by something that happened. So in Luke 12, in verse 13, we read this. Jesus was teaching, and someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This guy was looking for somebody to get justice. And he was saying, I need, I, I need my fair share of the inheritance. 
And Jesus replied to the man, Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? But then he said, Watch out. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Sounds like a pretty good scenario. Here's what Jesus says. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get all that you've prepared for yourself? And then Jesus puts the kicker in. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Who spent all of our time gathering and, and accumulating th- things for ourselves without any thought about God and what he wants. So after Jesus has laid down this principle, or these principles about um, treasures in heaven, about the heart um, and, and how our heart is tied to our treasures and about the fact that we can't serve two masters, that we can't serve God in money, he says in verse 25, therefore, I tell you, He's going to tell us the implications of that for how we are to live. When you see a therefore in the Bible or anywhere, you should ask yourself, what's the therefore therefore? It's there to refer to something that Jesus has already said. So he's saying, since what I have just told you is true, this is how you're to live. Verses 25 through 34 are so straightforward that they hardly need any commentary, but I think we need to look at them, so I'm going to just read them. This is what Jesus said. Therefore, based on what I just said, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Let me just back up far enough to say, when he says, do not worry, he's not just saying, have a cavalier attitude. He's saying, stop worrying. Stop twisting your colon. Stop burning holes in your stomach. Stop keeping up at night worrying about these things. Stop it. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than a day? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? I'm pretty sure we can take away a single hour from our life by worrying, but you can't add an hour to your life by worrying. There's an alternative, alternative translation to this that says, can, can one of you add a single inch to his height by worrying? And I can tell you by experience that doesn't work. <laughs> if it did, I would be very tall. Why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They don't labor or spin, and yet I tell you, not even Solomon, the richest man in the world, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. That's such an important phrase. When he talks about the pagans, he's not just condemning people because they don't know God. He's talking about people who have no concept of what it means to have a heavenly Father. So they're on their own. They're stuck trying to figure out themselves and provide for themselves. And they have to rely completely on themselves. And he says, you're not like that. You know better. Your heavenly Father knows what you need, and he'll provide it. And then he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What practical, simple um, homespun wisdom is there. Stop worrying about tomorrow. <laughs> it's not, you're not promised tomorrow. And you can't do anything about tomorrow anyway. So Jesus tells us basically two things. Stop worrying and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does that mean? What's the kingdom of God? We heard that phrase before. We heard it in um, the Lord's Prayer when Maya was teaching. When he says, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. Now those aren't two different um, statements. Those are two things that say the same thing. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where God's will is done is where his kingdom is. The sphere of life where God is recognized and honored as the king, as the creator, as the master of the universe, and where his will is obeyed, that's the kingdom. That's the kingdom of God. That happens here when I recognize and bow to my king, to the king of the universe who's also my king, and I obey him. It happens here when we're together, when we honor God as the king. That's why we spend the first half of our service in worship. It's not to create a mood. It's not just so that we can sing. It's not just to listen to beautiful music. It's to honor, to reverence, to stand in awe of who God is. And then when we obey him, uh, that is also how his will, how his kingdom is brought about. How do, we, how do we seek the kingdom of God? Well, we seek the kingdom of God, first of all, by knowing what he says. Because he's told us what he wants in this book. That's why we study it. That's why every day we, we get to know it better and better. That's why we make it a part of our lives. Because God's will is expressed in here. What he wants, his instructions for how we're to live, are here. And so we read this book. But also, we can find out and we can seek the kingdom of God by asking. Simply asking. Next week when Brian finishes the sermon, he'll be in chapter 7 of Matthew. And we'll read there that Jesus said, Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. And he's talking really about how we approach God. And he says, Which one of you fathers would not give good things to your kids if they ask?" how much more won't your Father, your Heavenly Father, answer your prayers? And if the prayer of your heart is, God, help me today to know how to seek your kingdom, he's going to answer that. Now, I'll give you a challenge. Try this for a week. And then after you try it for a week, try it for two weeks. And then after you try it for two weeks, try it for a month. Every day, every day, 
Ask God, how do I seek your kingdom today? What should I be doing that is about your kingdom today? I'll, I'll tell you, he will answer that prayer. He will. So listen for it. Watch for it. See what he has to say. When I was um, in seminary in the early 70s, I made a lifelong friend. He was a, a, one of those characters. Um, you know, all of us have people in our lives that are so kind of bigger than life and easy to remember. His name was Dean Ryder. And I could tell you a bunch of fun stories about him, but we became really good friends. Dean was from uh, the state of New York, and he had come out to Denver not only to go to, to Denver Seminary, but also he had a heart for kids. And in those days, we didn't really talk about homeless. That hadn't really become a, a popular term. But there were a lot of kids, teenagers, who were runaways, who would run away from home. And so he came to Denver to also, in addition to his studies, to open a house, a center for those kids. He called it Help House. He got some people uh, to invest and help him. He bought a house over just a little bit west of Broadway and a little bit north of First, kind of a, a, a transitional neighborhood now, but a pretty seedy neighborhood then. And he, he invested himself in pulling kids off the street, helping them find direction, teaching them what God's Word says, helping them rethink their lives and get them back on their feet. He had a great ministry. In the process, he met a young woman who was pregnant and not married. She was past the teen years, but he took her in anyway and um, helped her reestablish her life and get back on her feet. And when she moved out and got a job and lived on separately, they kept their relationship alive, and actually they fell in love, and they got married. And he married this woman, adopted her son, and then a little bit later on, they had a daughter together. When seminary was finished, Dean and his family were called to western New York. I called it upstate New York in the first service, but I checked with Bob Fugler, who knows New York really well, and he said, really, it's western New York. It's near Buffalo. So um, he moved to this small town in a small church and was happy as he could possibly be. He was in the right role. Dean was a pastor from, from day one. One day, he came home from his office at the church, and he found a note from his wife that said, I'm out of here. I've left with another man. You'll never see me again. I don't want to hear from you. I don't want to see the children. We are completely done. All that's left is to get the divorce papers in place and move on with our lives. Well, of course, that was devastating on its own that, that her, his, life, his wife would leave him. But in those days, in a small town, in a small church, that was scandalous. And so for Dean's wife to leave him meant that he would have to resign. So he lost his wife and he lost his job. And also in a small town, in a small church, the pastor usually would live in a house that was provided by the church called a parsonage. So when he lost his job, he lost his house. So he lost his family, his wife. He lost his job. He lost his home. And for all he knew, he had lost his career that he'd never be able to step back into ministry. His story has a happy ending. And within a few years, he remarried. He relocated in um, another small town a few, uh, about 100 miles away from where he was. And there was a church there gracious enough to see his gifts and his ability and his pastoral heart to hire him as their pastor. And he had a 
a, a fruitful ministry in that church for many years, and then he retired. After he retired, he moved to um, Tampa Bay, Florida. And now he is, I've never heard of this before, but he is um, a wedding chaplain on the beach. And people come to Tampa Bay, and they want to have their wedding on the beach. And Dean works with them and counsels with them, and then he performs their wedding ceremony. I asked him if he needs an assistant. Um, and uh, no, not really. And my wife wouldn't let us move that far away from our grandchildren anyway and our kids. But um, his, his story turned out okay. A couple of years after his life turned, Dean wrote a letter to some of his friends. I, I received the letter. And he said, you know, I, I've been through something horrific. And I just, uh, I want to tell you what God taught me through this time. Of course, I learned that God is faithful. When Shelley sung that song, it just, it was so appropriate. God is faithful. So he said, I learned that God is faithful and that life will change and that things can get better. But then he said, the most important thing I learned, the most important thing of all was don't hold on to the things of this world because there's nothing that can't be taken from you. So let it go. I think, I think that is the essence of what Jesus is teaching us here today when he says, look, don't lay up treasures on this earth, but put your treasures in heaven and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And don't worry. Don't worry about this life. Every day has enough worries of its own. Let's pray. Father, we're not very good at letting go. And we're very good at worrying. We're very good at being consumed by the things of this world. We're very good at being distracted from following you. And we pray that you would help to change our hearts, to move us in the direction that we know we need to move, to value the things of eternity, to seek your will, to seek your kingdom, and to do your will in our lives. We pray that you'll help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.